0: And they live in poverty. And and they're not retrieving those blessings out of the vending machine. And if the only way you can feel loved by God, and if the only way you judge blessing is through material blessing, then you're often going to question God's love. If if you measure God's love by how much stuff God gives you, uh, we'll often find ourselves not having all the stuff we wish we had. Or somebody that I talked, like I said yesterday, somebody who doesn't even show any interest in God, and they're making more money than they can spend. Live in the biggest house in the neighborhood, have the nicest cars in the neighborhood, uh, have front row seats to Thunder Games. You know, all the things we'd all like to have. And, and if, 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 if that's the way you measure God's love, well, then. It ought to lead us to question, oh, you say you love us, but how have you loved us? We don't have much stuff. And so God's response to that is uh, what can be a pretty controversial passage. He says, they say, how have you loved us? He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, build but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So that's God's answer to how have you loved us? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So let's talk a little bit about Jacob and Esau. I mean, that's the controlling story here uh, in the answer that God gives. So let's think about Genesis. It starts about Genesis 25, and really the Joseph story then goes all the way to the end of Genesis. And and it's a story about here's Isaac and Rebekah, and Rebekah becomes pregnant, and she's going to have twins. And uh, apparently, they really go at it even in her belly. And, and God says to her, like Genesis twenty five twenty somewhere around in there, a very important statement, I think, for understanding this passage. He says to her, you are carrying two nations in your womb. And he says, one will be greater than the other. And, and then he says, the older will serve the younger. Well, that's just not the way it's done in this, in this uh, culture. The younger serves the older. If you are the older child, you have the privilege. I mean, all the birthrights, all the blessing, well, not all, but the majority of the blessing, the inheritance. For the firstborn son, half of everything is his, and if there's ten children, the other nine have to split the other half. I mean, the older child has all the privilege in this culture, and so she gives birth to these two tw- to these twins, and Esau makes it out first. He's the older brother. Now Jacob is right on his heels, literally. And 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 their name Jacob and Esau. And Jacob means deceiver. Names matter particularly in Scripture. I mean, names always matter. I think most of us worked real hard to name our children and to think, what's it mean? And will kids make fun of them on the playground if we name them this or that? But names do matter. Well, they certainly matter here. And uh, Esau, it, 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 let's hang on to his name also. I'll, I'll say more about his name in a minute. So here here you have Esau first, and then Jacob right behind him. And, and so as it works out, uh, Esau is, is more what appears to be an outdoorsman, a hunter. He's hairy, you know, he's got a lot of hair on his arms. He, he's described as ruddy, uh, which I think of as something about the pigment in his skin sort of being reddish, which might reflect that he's outdoors a lot. He's sort of a, sort of a man's man. I, it's not the same thing, but sort of a, a jock kind of guy, you know, maybe by our thinking. And he likes to be outside. And, and, and here's a master hunter. And then here's Jacob, who it just describes him as... He sort of likes to be in the tents. And just so happens that Esau is sort of uh, Isaac's favorite. And Jacob is sort of Rebekah's favorite. Okay. So one day, Esau's out on the hunt. And he's been out all day hunting. And he comes into the house... And Jacob is cooking up something. I mean, literally, he's cooking something up. And the the description of it is, it's red stuff. Now, that's important. It's red stuff. Now, the word for red is uh, Admonai, and we get the word Edom, and in fact, Esau gets another name. He's also called Edom, and it comes from the word for red now guess what nation is going to come from then Esau? The Edomites, which is that country just to the south. You remember me talking about, last night I was talking about how what part of what we causes these books to be joined together is like this judgment on Edom that's pronounced at the end of, what is it, Amos. Uh, and, and then the next book begins with Obadiah, begins with the, the judgment upon Edom. That nation that's not yet a nation, but will, be, will become Edom, that's the ancestors, the, 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 the descendants of Esau. And, it, and it's built off this idea of red. So here's Jacob cooking up something, and it's red stew. And Esau really wants some of it. I mean really wants some of it. And, and, and Jacob has already sort of had this planned out. He says, well, okay, that'd be fine, but you're going to have to give me your birthright for it. Now, the birthright is, about, is a financial deal. That's that firstborn has, gets the, the largest share of the inheritance. That's about the inheritance. And so Jacob, whose name is Deceiver, Trickster, looks like he's trying to sort of deceive, trick his brother out of his birthright. And first, first time, Esau sort of, eh, and then he comes back again. And, and he offers him again, okay, but you got to give me your birthright. And, and very dramatically, it seems, Esau says, oh, well, I'm, I feel like I'm going to starve to death. And so what good would my birthright be if I died? So I need some of that red stew, so okay. So he sells him his birthright for a uh, pot of red stew. So now he's lost his birthright to his brother, Jacob. So Jacob's sort of manipulating the situation to his favor, and now he has the birthright. And then time passes, and we don't get a lot of inclination about how long passes, but now Esau's old, or excuse me, Esau's not old, Isaac is old, their father is old. And it's time for him to pronounce sort of this family ancestral blessing on the firstborn. Now, Esau may have sold his birthright, but he didn't sell the blessing that his father would give him. And this blessing is about the family line. It's about the, the, the sort of the, 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 the blessing of the family going with this son and, and his family. And, and this is an honor shame culture. And the firstborn is the one who receives this blessing. And it's just part of the honor of being a firstborn. And so Isaac says, I'm old, I'm about to die, I'm ready to give you the blessing, but I sure would like some of that wild game that I have a taste for, so would you go out and kill me something and, and, and cook it up and I'll eat it and I'll give you the blessing. Well, Rebecca overhears this sort of situation as it develops and she says then to Jacob she gets him over front and center and she says okay Isaac's ready to give the blessing he can't see anything he's blind as a bat so we want to get you up there he's going to think that's Esau and he'll give you the blessing and so she even they put like goat skin on his arms to make him like he's hairy so so Isaac well he can't see him but he'll feel him and think it's Esau and it works. I mean, here's Jacob, deceiver, trickster. And uh, walks over there, and uh, I don't know if Rebekah sets it up or whatever, but Isaac thinks it's Esau, pronounces the blessing on Jacob, and now Esau's lost both his birthright and the ancestral blessing. And about the time... That Esau or Isaac has pronounced this blessing. Esau comes in the door. He sees what's happened and he's outraged. And and the text even says that that Isaac trembles. And um, Rebekah says to Jacob, I think it'd be a good time for you to get out, to run. But he already has the birthright and the blessing. And uh, so this is how this story. Sort of goes between these two brothers, uh, Jacob and Esau, and uh, so here we come back to the text. He says, "Is not Esau Jacob's brother?" declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob; I have loved, and Esau I have hated. So, what does it mean when he says he loved Jacob and he hated Esau? What does love mean here? Uh, the word that he is used for that is translated love is a word that's often used in the Old Testament to talk about the love between a husband and a wife, Uh, like Samson and Delilah, for example. Uh, Jacob and and, uh, Rachel, it's used to describe their love. But it's not only that kind of love, it's also used to describe other family relationships and the love that is is shared within a family that's not romantic love, Um, like between brother or sister. Uh, It's used to describe love between close uh, friends, uh, Saul and David, uh, Jonathan and David. And so it's a word that's often used of family relationships. When you look in the Old Testament for where this word uh, occurs and this description of God's love, let me read you a couple of passages. And I I think this is going to help us understand something of what it means when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Uh, let's pick it up at, uh, at Deuteronomy. This, I think this is pretty, a couple of pretty important passages. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll pick it up at about verse 37. And because he loved your fathers. Now there's that word, the same word that's love uh, in our passage in Malachi. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, And brought you up out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and earth beneath, there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Now you notice this statement of love is tied to God's choosing them, God making them his people, God bringing them up out of Egypt. It's God's covenant love. It's not some sort of romantic love. It's not that God loves them in the sense that he likes to pick them up and hold them real close. It's God's election. It's God's choice of them. God making Israel his people. Choosing them. Almost a synonym for the kind of love we're talking about here would be choice. You could almost translate that Malachi uh, 1 passage Jacob I chose, and Esau I didn't. Now look at, we're still in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. I'm just trying to give you a sense of what kind of love this is that, that we're talking about. Uh, look at We'll start at verse 6, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now do you start to get an idea of what kind of love we're talking about here? We're talking about God's love for a nation. A people. It's the kind of love that drives him to choose them. As his people. It's his covenant love. It's not some sort of romantic feeling. It's not the kind of love that where you just pick up you know. And, and, and you know hug them up. It's his covenant love. It's his choice of Israel. As his people. Okay, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, what does hated mean in this context? Does it mean that God has anger, bitter, sort of uh, very negative feelings towards Esau? If Jacob I loved means Jacob I chose, that I chose Jacob to be the person... Whose ancestors would be my people? Then what does that mean for Esau? Well, it just so happens that Esau and his descendants would not be the chosen people. It means to love less or not to choose. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Here's what this is not. Hear me, I think I could easily be misunderstood about what my point is here. I'm going to try to be as clear as I can, although I'm sure I'm often not clear. This is not God choosing one individual, Jacob, for heaven, and God choosing another individual, Esau, for eternal damnation. That is not what kind of choice this is. This is God choosing Jacob to be the the head of a nation that will be his people and not choosing Esau and his descendants as the ones who would be his chosen people. Remember the passage in Genesis 25, 20. These are two nations in your womb. Now, here's the trick in this. Well, then was he choosing one nation for eternal salvation and another nation for eternal damnation? What was God's choice of Israel all about? Why did God choose Israel? Just to be his beloved people from that point forward, just so he'd have a people to love? Or did he choose them for a purpose so that they could be a blessing to all nations? Why did he choose Israel? To be a light to the nations. That's the language in Isaiah repeatedly, that he has chosen Israel to be a light to the other nations. Here's why this passage is so important, and Paul picks up on it in Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. And there, because he quotes this passage, Paul does, it's often used to argue that God chooses some for eternal salvation and some for eternal damnation. It's almost like just quoting, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated proves that God chooses some for salvation, some for damnation. That's not what this is about. He's choosing a nation here to be a light to the other nations including the Edomites and the Moabites. The choosing of Jacob becomes an instrument that God's name might be made known to the other nations. It's not about damning anybody. It's about choosing a nation through which other nations can know who the true God is and that they might come to know him. So whatever you do with this passage in Romans 9 or anywhere else, this is not about God choosing Esau personally for eternal damnation or choosing his descendants for eternal damnation. And when you get to that Romans 9 passage, and let's go ahead and let's take a run at that quickly, because I think that's where this really sort of hits The rubber hits the road on this. It's Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are named Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac... Your descendants will be named. Oh, this is where he starts before he gets to Jacob and Esau. He starts with Isaac. Now, let's think about this. Who's Isaac's father? Of course, Isaac is the father of Jacob and Esau. But who's Jacob's father? Who is it? Or I said, who's Jacob? uh, That's Isaac. Who's Isaac's father? Abraham. Abraham. Is Isaac Abraham's firstborn son? No, Ishmael is his firstborn son. So you've got two sons that come from Abraham, but are both those sons Israel? No, two nations come out of those two sons also. And who's the older? Ishmael. But is he the chosen line? No, once again, God sort of does it in a way that's unusual. It should be the older child. The preferred, but in the case of Abraham and and Isaac or, uh, and Ishmael, it's reversed again. It's the secondborn who's the child of promise. Now somebody might say, "Well, yeah, okay," but Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian, so that sort of that's why they're not seed of, of uh, Abraham. And and that's let's keep reading here. Verse 8, in, in the, Romans 9, 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as, as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this. So now, to somebody who says, yeah, but I understand why Ishmael wasn't a child of promise because his mother was an Egyptian. Okay. So it wasn't God's choice. It was that his mother was an Egyptian. All right. Verse ten. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, "The older will serve the younger," just as it is written, "Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." So, if you have any doubts about it just being God's choice okay, Uh, Isaac and Ishmael could be, Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian, so that's why Isaac was the chosen. But that won't work with Jacob and Esau. They had the same father and the same mother. And God didn't choose Jacob because he looked down the line and thought he'd be better. Or he looked down the line when he was going to be old and said, yeah, here'd be the better choice. He He was kind of a, You know, snotty-nosed, younger brother, living in the tents, deceiving his brother, sort of manipulating his way forward. I don't know if God would have chosen him if he just was choosing by who looks like they're the best or most capable. But it wasn't about that. But he wasn't choosing one for salvation and one for damnation. He was choosing one to be the nation... Through which he would make his name known to all the other nations, including the Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau, and the Moabites, who are the descendants of Ishmael. Now, I'd like to, you know, if we were sitting in a room around a desk, you know, with seven around a table, and there were seven of us sitting there, and I could say, now, do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is if you're trying to use Jacob I loved and Esau I hated as an argument for God choosing some for salvation and some for damnation, you are misusing this story. Nobody's being chosen here for damnation. He's choosing one who represents a nation and that nation will be a light to the other nations. Not an instrument of judgment on them. Well, I think I beat that horse pretty well to death, so there it is. But it, it's, such an important, it's such an important passage because Paul uses it there in Romans 9, and it's often used for the purposes that I'm trying to say that's not, I think, a proper use of that story. A- at the end of it all, we come down to something on this question about God's choice and election and so forth, that God... Um, has mercy on whom he, whomever he has mercy and he hardens the heart of whomever he hardens but, but here's the funny thing about the sovereign's God, sovereign God's choice here I think he tends to have mercy on those who believe and he hardens those who refuse to believe funny how that works It's a a much more complicated interrelationship here, God's choice and our choice to believe or not to believe. And I'm not going to work all that out tonight. But I am going to say, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated does not mean God chooses some for salvation and some for damnation. He was choosing a nation through Jacob who would be, and, and you know, Jacob. His name becomes Israel. You know, when he wrestles with God at the Jabbok River and he finally gets the blessing from from the angel or from God, he gets named Israel. You talk about somebody who represents a nation. This isn't about him individually. I mean, it's like somebody being named America. America. Be a good name for somebody. Or, or naming somebody United States. United States Kelly. How would that have been, Luke? You like that name? America Kelly. I mean, that's how this individual, Jacob, represents a nation. He gets the name Israel. So this is about more than individuals. It's about God's choosing. And this is God's demonstration of his love for Israel. I chose you. I made you my covenant people. And I'm sorry if you don't have enough stuff. And I'm sorry if you don't feel like you've got a big enough harvest to, you know, to sort of vindicate that you are my people. But you are my people. I chose you. And that choice is a demonstration of God's love. And I think this works pretty well in our own circumstance when you sort of get down and low and doubting you know nobody loves me everybody hates me I'm going to eat some worms and and it's it's that you can't have this vending machine mentality about God's love you can't gauge whether or not God loves you by how much stuff you have or even about how smoothly your, your life might be going at even, any given moment. We live in a fallen world where people make horrendous choices and even people who haven't made bad choices in a certain area often have suffer consequences for, the, for those bad choices that others might make. But when it comes down to it, the fact that God chose me is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And the promise is he will vindicate that. Maybe not tonight. Maybe not tomorrow. I might still have a tough go of it tomorrow. But ultimately, God will vindicate his love for me. But you can't gauge God's love in this vending machine sort of mentality. I'm going to put in a certain amount of commitment and I ought to get a certain amount of material blessing out of it contrary to what your local TV preacher might be telling you. I think it's a dangerous thing uh, to have that vending machine mentality about God and God's love. Okay, so that is uh, the first uh, disputation. And uh, now let's move on to the second one. So uh, we go from, this one's a little bit longer. It's uh, Malachi chapter 1, Uh, verse 6, and it goes actually through chapter 2, verse 9. So let's pick it up at 1-6. Now, that first disputation was a word to all Israel. This one is a bit more focused towards the priests, the leadership of Israel. He says, "...a son honors his father, and a servant his master." Now, numerous times in Malachi, it's going to be reiterated that God is our Father. That's a, that's, a, that's a theme in Malachi, that God is our Father. And usually that works out to our advantage. Usually that means God is affirming, one, that I created you, and two, that I am with you. The image of God is Father. God is not an absentee Father. The fact that God is our Father means we would not exist apart from Him. He created us. We wouldn't be alive if not for God. That's part of what it means that God is Father. It also means God's presence is with us because He's that kind of Father. So it's about His ongoing presence with us. Usually it's a really good thing that God is our Father. Here it's problematic for them because... A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? So it sort of works. In this culture, the most important honor-shame relationship is the relationship between a father and a son. This is a culture that's all about honor and shame. I know I've told you that every year I've been here. Somehow that comes up. That that's the number one cultural value For for ancient Mediterranean people. Certainly, it's true of ancient Israelites. They would rather die than lose honor. Honor is not our number one cultural value. We, We do all sorts of things to elevate people who are not honorable people because they're wealthy or they're popular or they're celebrities or whatever and so we revere them because of that not because they're honorable that didn't happen in ancient israel honor was everything so what was the heart of this honor shame culture it was that you were a man that helped you, that, that was the sort of central to the honor on, having a, being an honorable person if you were a woman you were honorable because your father was honorable And if he was dishonorable, then you were treated as dishonorable. So a woman's honor was wrapped up in her father. And then after she got married, it was wrapped up in her husband. So one, being a man, was central to this honor culture. Having children, having sons, and your sons obeying you. Showing their honor for you by being obedient to you. What's God say? to them. He says I am your father I'm like a father to you sounds like a Star Wars I am your Luke, I am your father Uh, I am your father I am your master but where is the honor that is due a father where is my honor that I should have because I am your master I am your lord and What's the, uh, he says, if I am master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priests who desecrate my name. So there's the assertion. I am your father. I am your master, your Lord. Now where is the honor? due me, priests, those who I've selected to be the leaders among the people. But you say, really? Well, how have we despised your name? So it's that, here's the dispute. They dispute the fact that they have desecrated his name or despised his name. They they challenge the fact that they have failed to honor his name as Father and Lord. How have we despised your name? God says, well, if you want to know, I'll tell you. Verse 7, by offering spoiled food upon my altar. But you say, oh, really? Really? Well, how have we offered spoiled food? How have we polluted your altar? He says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now, here's here's what that means. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor now, who would be their governor? That would be the Persian governor that is over them because they're under Persian rule. And he says, you wouldn't even present an offering like that to your Persian secular governor. I'm your God, your father, your master. And you're presenting these inferior, inferior offerings to me. Now, you do know it's a big deal. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, what kind of animals are sacrificed to God? You can't just bring the worst of your flock. you got to bring the best of your crops and the first. The first 10% and the best. And when it comes to livestock, it's supposed to be a lamb that's unblemished. One year old. It's got to be nearly perfect. It can't be blind, it can't be maimed, it can't be lame. Deuteronomy fifteen nineteen would be a good, example, a good explanation of, of the, sort of the rules for what is an acceptable sacrifice to God. It, it gives the same thing in Leviticus. I'm going to read Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 15, starting at verse 19. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer, only you shall not eat its blood, you shall pour it out on the ground like water. Now, I mean, that's pretty specific rules of engagement here as to what, what you're supposed to bring to God as a sacrifice and what's number one on the list of what is not an acceptable sacrifice to God if the animal is lame or blind or maimed and what kind of sacrifices are they making on God's altar. And if you think about it, the picture is that God's altar in the temple is like a table on which you're bringing food for God. Now, God obviously doesn't eat it. He doesn't need it to eat it. But that's the image that is often used, that the Lord's altar is like a table where you bring your offerings, and that's like offering up food on the table for God. And when it's polluted food, that means it's like it's like. It would be like having a most honored guest in your house and serving him milk that was spoiled and meat that was already gone bad. You wouldn't do that. He says, well, that's what you priests are doing. You're bringing this corrupted, polluted food, and you're setting it out on my table. Where's my honor? You are despising my name by doing that. And this is directed mainly at the priests. He says in verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. And this is that charge that they're not taking seriously the presence of God in their midst. They're not taking seriously that these offerings they're making are in the presence of the Almighty God. And you can't just bring him just any old animal for sacrifice. His name must be honored. In verse 11 he says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations says the Lord of hosts but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is its food may be despised but you say what a weariness this task is that and you snort at it says the Lord of hosts it's like the priests are carrying out their duties their priestly duties But they're offering animals that are not acceptable. Now, people might be bringing them. Obviously, the people are bringing these animals. But they're accepting them and and sacrificing them. And they're doing it in the most nonchalant. It's like they take it completely for granted that they're offering these to God. They snort. They sort of mock that they're going through these tasks of sacrificing these animals. It's that religious ritualism. There's no heart in it. They're just going through the motions. And, and, and it's almost like they, they treat it with mockery. Now this is Israel's leaders. This is, this is a charge about Israel's leadership. And I can tell you, as someone who speaks to people and delivers the word and serves as interim at churches... It is possible that you get to the point where you're just sort of going through the motions and you're certainly not giving God anything that resembles your best. And God says, that's a pretty serious matter. In fact, it makes me sick to my stomach. I don't want those offerings. I don't want that kind of sacrifice. I just wish, he says, someone would lock the doors. So we could stop this sham of offering these animals by priests who have no passion, no heart in it, who actually treat their work, their calling as if it's a mockery. I just wish someone would shut the doors. That would be better. And um, when he says the nations will honor my name. I don't think at this moment there's any nation you could point to that's offering pure offerings to God and that they're honoring God's name. Israel would be the best shot at it. But I think it looks forward to the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And what he says, Israel, you just look like like a pagan nation making these sacrifices to God. But someday, every knee will bow. And you ought to know better now. Now, 1, Oh, let me read verse 14. He says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, that is, commits it to the Lord, and yet sacrifices it to the Lord what is blemished. And here's the basis of the curse. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Sounds like God's a little perturbed. At what they're doing so it's a curse death dishonor and the basis of it is I'm not to be trifled with I am a great king and then at one. and now O priests this command is for you if you will not listen if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name says the Lord of hosts then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Now think about how profound that statement is. To the priests, he says, I will curse your blessings. Now that might be a number of things. He doesn't specify exactly what he means. But the priest did live a pretty good existence. I mean, a lot of Israelites lived in poverty. Priests lived above that poverty line. People brought their offerings to the temple that helped sort of care for the priest. They did all right. They were blessed in that way. He says, well, if you're going to do that, I'll just curse your blessings. Maybe that means they're going to lose their material blessings. It could also mean when you, when you look at numerous places in the Old Testament where he talks about the priesthood and the blessings of being a priest, one of those blessings is peace. Maybe God says, if you're going to do that, I'll curse your blessing. That is, the peace that comes with carrying out this calling. Eh. Another blessing that comes with the priesthood is you pronounce blessings on the people. That's something that a priest has the the great opportunity of doing. To offer a, a, a blessing on the people. And the most basic one is that Numbers chapter 6. I said it last night at the end of the service. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. We just throw blessings around like they don't mean much. They thought it really meant something to offer a blessing on someone. They thought words, the speaking of a word of blessing had the power to bring that blessing into being. Just like speaking words of curse had the power to bring a curse, negativity, onto a person. So think, get this picture. If you're going to act like this, he says, if you're going to not take your calling seriously, if you're going to offer these sacrifices that profane my name, it's like bringing me rotted food on my, to my table, then you can lift your hand and pronounce those blessings, but I'll turn that blessing into a curse upon the people. think about someone who has been given the calling to bless what you do will be a curse I think there's some of that these aren't mutually exclusive by the way and the last one and I think definitely there's some of this one of the blessings of being a priest was your sons would also be priests in fact if you look in Exodus is the passage I'm thinking of I can't remember the chapter where it sort of describes the ordination of a priest the last thing that's done in the ordination of a priest is the priest's sons are brought in and the priestly garments are put on them as a foreshadowing of someday they will go through the same ordination and they will be priests as well and in an honor shame culture this 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 was a great honor you know, that used to be true. I don't, I don't sense it as much now, but that used to be a big deal if a son did the same thing that his father did. You know, if the father was a basketball coach. Then sons who were basketball coaches, that, that made dad was real proud of that. And it was, like an, it was like an honorable thing. It was honoring your father that you wanted to do what he did. And my dad was a truck driver. I just wasn't cut out for that. <laughs> Can you see me as a truck driver? I just don't think I'm cut out for that. Obviously, I wasn't. But th- that used to be true more so. You know, education was not quite the right ra- and you just sort of learned maybe sort of the trade that your dad did, and that was an honorable thing. Well, that was certainly true for priests. When he says, I will curse your blessing, maybe their children were their blessing. Maybe he's saying either you won't even have children or if you do, they won't be priests. Now, why would I think that? Let's keep reading. He says in chapter 2, we're still reading there in verse 1, he says, I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not, lay, you do not resolve to honor me. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. That's number one. Now, I know you're not as interested in maybe the Greek translation of the Old Testament as I might be, but in the in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament at this place, rather than it saying, I will rebuke your offspring, which the Hebrew Bible says, the Greek translation says, I will cut off your arms. Now, what's that? Now, I, I think the better translation is I will rebuke your offspring. So I think this curse is more about not having children, not being able to have children. And if you do, they won't be priests or they won't be blessed. But how about, I will cut off your arms. That's like the priest can't raise his arms to give the blessing. So I I think there's there's more than one way to think about the, the kind of curse that God, it's not just a single kind of curse. So that's number one, I will rebuke your offspring. Two, I will spread dung on your faces. Now, uh, I told you this is an honor-shame culture. It's about clean and unclean. I don't think there's any culture in which spreading dung on someone's face wouldn't be a negative thing. Maybe there's some, some, but I don't know it. You know, this is feces, excrement. Now, here's why this is powerful, though. When you sacrificed an animal... To God in the temple. They cut out the entrails. And it was carried outside the temple. And it, though that part of the animal was burned. Because that, you don't want that stuff in the holy place. The picture is. That stuff we cut out of the animal. That you sacrificed to me. Instead of it being taken out to burn. I'll rub it on your face. Now you think of the priest with the animal feces spread on his face. How about that for a curse and a picture of God's curse upon him? And the third part of the curse is, and you shall be taken away with it. It was normally the entrails that were taken away and burned, but now it'll be spread on your face and you'll be taken away. Taken away from what? Taken away from God's presence. Now, that's a pretty strong threefold curse. I will curse your descendants. I will spread animal feces on your face. And I will take you out of my presence. I'd say that's pretty strong stuff. Let's just finish reading this. Verse 4 So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He's talking about Levi. Who was uh, what the third son of Jacob and Leah. And the priests are all descendants of Levi. Aaron was a descendant of Levi. Um, It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord. That's that Malachi, Malachi, messenger. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. You were supposed to be a blessing to the people. You've become a curse to them. You were supposed to lead them in the way. This is what God's called people are supposed to do, lead his people on the way. You have lost your way. And instead of speaking my word, you've substituted your own word. Doesn't that sound pretty 2017? Doesn't that sound pretty relevant for what happens for a lot of God's messengers who speak not God's words but their own for their own benefit? Strong words. For those who would be God's messengers. And, and this, I think this has something to say to everybody. But I've already decided. And this isn't a text I'd given much attention. till Malachi was the winter Bible study. And I had to work through it. But if I, if I get asked to speak in the seminary. Anytime in the near future. This is my text. And I think the title will be. Dung on your face. <laughs> I think that will draw a crowd. Uh, so. That's the first two disputes. So we'll do two more and then two more. And uh, that'll take us through Wednesday night. So Owen, if I'm done, I will ask the blessing. I'll do that priestly blessing one more time upon you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. I'll see you tomorrow night.